0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, I know that you guys at the Briar Creek campus, uh, many of you are concerned about the lady that fell this morning in the choir. Her name was Ann. Uh, She, uh, uh, thankfully, when she fell, she was surrounded by uh, about 19 medical personnel here at the Summit Church. Uh, And so they just happened to all be in the choir as well. Uh, So they have told us that she's fine. It just looks like she got a little lightheaded. um, And there's no need, they say, for um, any immediate concern. So we are grateful that, um, uh, that that was not a significant incident. Um, I, uh, I, as Chris mentioned to you here at the Briar Creek campus, uh, it seems like there are a lot of things that are going on right now and I don't want you to become overwhelmed. This is just a time of year where uh, we really encourage a lot of people who are more in the audience side of our church to transition out of that into um, team members instead of audience members and so we provide a number of on-ramps for them to do that. Earlier this weekend we had Uh, the Small Groups Rally, uh, Small Group Leaders Rally, which uh, had a ton of people come to it and was awesome. Uh, And so we're getting ready to see small groups get kicked off, and that's a great way for some of you to get involved uh, here at the Summit Church. And uh, one of our small group leaders over there, very excited about that, uh, no doubt. Um, In addition to that, you're going to hear about something called Frontline, which is a way that we encourage you to get involved in the ministry teams here at the Summit Church on the weekend. It takes some 800 people for us to pull off a weekend here at the Summit Church. Uh, That's not an exaggeration of a single one, 800 people, and uh, we need a lot of you to be involved in helping us reach out to our community that way. One of the most important that uh, you're going to hear about is something we call Vision Night. Um, The Vision Night, which is going to be Tuesday, August the 23rd, Um, it is something where we take time to just celebrate and remember what God has done in the last year. Uh, Then we we worship God for that. Then we talk about where we're going to be headed in the next year And then we pray our rear ends off about it Um, This is something for every member of the Summit Church who is invested in and bought in here You might be new around here. We want you to come to this. Uh, This is every member every campus together Unfortunately our largest seating area only seats a thousand people Um, and so we have to give out tickets to this event tickets are free Um, but you do have to pick them up and so at every campus today it's going to be available and I would highly encourage you to get one before you leave Um, I I say this I don't mean to preach at you well that's actually my job but um, I don't mean to to do it this early in the message Um, we really don't want this to be just an audience of consumers this is a group of people who are in ministry vision night is a way that you can become a part of what is going on here Um, there's one quick item that we take care of every year at business night and that's where we vote in our budget it doesn't take long Um, If you want to see our budget beforehand, we would invite you to do that. Go to our website, and there's a little tab that says Vision Night, and you can get access to it there. Any questions you have, you can certainly ask those uh, in the things that will tell you how to do that leading up to that meeting. Um, So at your campus, when you leave today, make sure you pick up a ticket uh, so that we can be there and be together and just spend a night of prayer and celebration. Okay? All right, I have two purposes this weekend uh, for the message. So if you have your Bible, I want you to pull it out. And I want you to open it to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. If you are unfamiliar with your Bible, um, the good news is once you find John 15, uh, we're going to be there for the next eight weeks. So you can just put something in there and every week for the next eight weeks, you'll know exactly where to turn. You'll look like a Bible pro. Uh, When I say open your Bible to John 15 and bam, it's there, all right? Here are my two purposes this weekend. First is I want us to explore together One of the most important passages where Jesus explains how people change. I think this is a question on a lot of people's minds, not just Christians. If you don't believe me, just go into Barnes & Noble and uh, walk into the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. It's like half the store. Um, How uh, a fearful person can develop courage. How a person who is undisciplined can develop self-control. Uh, there are books on how people who are fanatics or people who are racist become become tolerant. Uh, everybody wants to know how it is you can change. Can you really change? Is that even possible? Um, well, in this passage, Jesus will take you down deep to show you how He says you change, and along the way, He gives you one of the most concise yet comprehensive pictures of what a disciple of His looks like. We're going to study that for the next eight weeks specifically we're going to look at five different disciplines that he says that his disciples will practice now I'll mention at this point that our small groups are going to be studying along with me um, during this looking at these same five practices and going uh, even deeper Uh, these are available at our campuses uh, this morning for you to pick up if you're in a small group you will need one Um, if you're not in a small group you can still get one and follow along with us anyway Um, one of the things we realize here one of my goals as a pastor you've heard me say this is to help people read the Word of God better. Not for me to tell you what I think about everything, but for me to help you read the Word of God better. And one of the ways you can do that is by studying along with me, so you're not just hearing what I'm saying, but you're interacting with it. You will get so much more out of it. So I would encourage you, whether you're in a small group or not, to pick one of these up and to study along with us, because we're gonna take a look at what a disciple of Jesus, what their life actually looks like, okay? That's my first purpose, is to give you an overview this morning of where we're headed. My second purpose is I'm going to be explaining a core truth here at the Summit Church. Something that if you're listening will be in almost every single sermon. So that means if you've been around here you have heard me talk about this before and that's good because this is the core of everything that we do. I have people who have been at this church who tell me that this was something that knew that God taught them at this church. Uh, Trevor Atwood who we just sent out to be a church planner in Nashville said I grew up in church all my life. I grew up in church all my life, but, but, but I'd never understood this concept until I got to the summit church. One of our elders said, I've been in church for 40 years. 40 years I've been in church. I've been a deacon. I've been chairman of the deacons. But in the last five years, God has taught me more about this than he had in all the years prior to this combined. And by the way, let me just add this too. That means if you're new around here, that this might be a difficult concept. And I don't want you to get discouraged if you don't quite get it the first time that you hear me talk about it. I'm not insulting your intelligence or trying to dare you in something like there's no way you're gonna get this I'm just saying that things like this sometimes They take a few times of repetition to really let them soak in plus I talk Ridiculously fast and it may not be possible just to to get all this from a fire hydrant this morning All right um, Here it is here. It is here. It is we believe we believe that the gospel is not just for unbelievers We believe the gospel is for Christians, too The gospel is not just how we begin in Christ. The gospel is also how we grow in Christ. We believe that in the gospel are all the resources that are necessary for Christian growth. Let me say that again. We believe that in the gospel are all the resources that are necessary for Christian growth. We would go so far as to say that the way you grow in Christ is never growth beyond the gospel, but deeper into the gospel. You see, for most people, the gospel, which is the message that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins and offers us salvation now as a gift, that gospel was their initiation into Christianity. It was the prayer that they prayed to begin their Christian life, the diving board off of which they jumped into the pool of Christianity. I want to show you why we say that the gospel is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity But the gospel is the pool itself Why it's not just the ABC's of Christianity why it is the a through Z of Christianity That everything that you're going to experience for the rest of the Christian life is simply swimming deeper in the gospel We always talk about the gospel setting you free from sin I want to show you this morning why the gospel must not only set you free from sin it must also set you free from the false substitutes of religion now here we go John chapter 15 verse 1 let me walk you through it then I'll try to make some some principles or draw out some principles here toward the end John 15 verse 1 I am the true vine says Jesus And my father is the vine dresser. This is one of Jesus' seven I am passages in the Gospel of John. I am is the Hebrew name for for Jehovah. So Jesus is talking about this is something that is true of him because he is God. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He's using the metaphor of gardening. And he's saying that that for a wise gardener to to know how a plant grows, you have to prune it. I do not repeat this to you by experience, by any means whatsoever. I'm simply saying this is what people who do this kind of thing tell me. But in order for uh, for many plants to grow, they have to be pruned. A good example is a rose bush. A rose bush, if it is not pruned properly, will not ever have roses that grow and flourish. What happens is literally the plant grows in on itself. And you have all these vines that begin to cover up these few roses that could be beautiful. And what you've got is it literally chokes itself In addition to that, by all these little false spurious vines sprouting off everywhere, what happens is the resources of the plant are redirected away from the few roses that really need it into all these little false pursuits, right? And so when it's not pruned properly, you end up not with a few luscious roses. You end up with a bunch of little scraggly, puny, nasty-looking ones. You want to see an example of this? Drive by my house anytime and look at the rose bushes that are in my flower bed in order for those things to really flourish it has to be pruned Jesus is saying this is what's going on with you verse 3 already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you now in Greek there is a connection of words as a play on words that is missing in English Jesus did not just switch metaphors from pruning to taking a bath it's not why he brought up the word clean the word clean in Greek literally means stripped stripped like pruned and what he's saying to them is already already just in what I have taught you. You've already been stripped of of a lot of your false pursuits. I've taught you that the world is passing away. I've taught you that sin is useless. I've taught you to follow me. I shattered your pride by telling you how badly you need forgiveness. But in addition to that teaching, you see, there's still a lot of parts of your life that are chasing a lot of things that you shouldn't be chasing. So I stripped those things out of your life and that's what's going to go on for the rest of your life is I'm going to be taking things out I'm going to be pruning you so that you are focused and directed on the things that I am doing through you as some of you know a lot of times this is painful you've ever seen a plant after a a gardener has gotten done with it it's not pretty you got all these things lying on the ground that look like they ought to be attached to the plant it look like they're perfectly healthy and normal and they're just lying there on the ground and you got even little pieces of fruit or or, or roses that are there on the ground the plant looks bald ripped up like it's bleeding but that is the process that the gardener uses to bring out the best things that that plant he wants to do in that plant the gardener has not removed anything that was a loss to keep or a gain to lose think me to write that down the gardener has not removed anything, even though it's painful and looks bloody. The gardener has not removed anything that was not a loss to keep or a gain to lose. It's painful, and I'm not even saying you'll always understand it. But when God prunes you, see that's that's what God is doing. Verse four: Abide in me, abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You see, the branch only lives as it's connected to the vine. A branch has no life in itself but as the branch is connected to the vine the life of the vine flows into it in the same way we have no spiritual life in ourselves but as we abide in jesus the life of god flows into us the life of god and of course the person of the holy spirit abide is the greek word "meno," "meno," which literally means to make your home in as you make your home in jesus as you plant yourself in Jesus his life the Holy Spirit begins to flow in you verse 5 I am divine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruits for apart from me you can do nothing now if you allow me a little liberty here nothing here does not literally mean nothing okay let me, let me explain you why I say that because we all know people who aren't connected to Jesus who do things right they have families they get married they have children They do lots of different things Right? They even do religious things. Jesus, for several times in the Gospels, talks about people who are not connected to him at all. But in Matthew 7, he talked about some that did miracles in his name, some that preached in his name, some involved in ministry in his name, but he said, I never knew you. So when he says nothing here, he doesn't mean nothing religiously. He means nothing of eternal value. He means nothing of real life in it. Nothing that has real life in it. That's a very important point, which we're going to come back to. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my by disciples. It is by sheer discipline that I am not Jumping off of each verse and preaching an entire sermon because I know that if I did we would be here until Thursday Okay, but we're going to come back because I'm skipping over so much wonderful material That that's why we're gonna spend eight weeks in and around these verses. Okay, so verse 9 verse 9 Good job JD keep going verse 9 as the father has loved me. So I have loved you Abide in my love. What an astounding statement Think of the father's love for his son what that must be like. It's eternal it's divine it's God the perfect father's love for his perfect son you parents love your children the love that you have for your children is a pale reflection of the eternal love of the father for the son that is the love that the father that Jesus loves us with and Jesus says make your home in that make your home in that some of you may have thought what does it mean to abide It sounds like Christian mumbo-jumbo a lot of times, doesn't it? Like, what does that mean? I mean, abide, is that like a, you memorize scripture, you walk around humming Christian tunes, what does it mean to abide is it a list of behaviors, this verse shows you what it means. Abiding means resting in his love. Abiding in him is not so much about things that you are to do for him as it is resting in his thoughts about you. This seems to be the hardest part of Christianity for people to learn. God's acceptance is given to us not as a reward for what we have done, but as a gift. It's what we refer to around here as gift righteousness. God's righteousness given to us as a gift. We think that we become righteous or acceptable in God's sight by acting a certain way. That makes sense, right? The more righteously you act, the more God accepts you, the more God is pleased with you, the closer he feels to you, the more he, is, more he approves of you. But the gospel is the counter-intuitive truth that you can never be righteous before God. So God offers you righteous standing before him as a gift, not according to what you have done, but according to what Christ has done in your place. Gift righteousness given in love. Great way to remember that. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Gift righteousness at Christ's expense. And you see, when you receive that, when you abide in that, and you rest in it, His life starts to flow into you, and then you start to change, not because you're told to change, but because your your heart changes. You begin not just to act rightly; you begin to desire the right things. You don't need to be commanded to do what's right. You start to do what's right because you love what's right. I'll give you an example, not to be crude, but but if there was a pile of throw up in front of you this morning. I wouldn't have to command any of you don't lick that throw up up right of course not now if you're a dog you know your dog's like hey warm throw up half digested hot dog bonus <laughs> a dog would have to be commanded to stay away from the throw up but not you because it's not in your nature right when your nature has been changed so that you desire the right things you don't need to be commanded those things you avoid them because you no longer desire them It's not just your behaviors that change, but your your heart and your desires Listen here. It is faith in what God has done Releases the life of God into you Faith in what God has done Releases the life of God in you that changes the desires within you I would write this down real change begins not with you being told what you are to do for God But believing what God has done for you That's the counterintuitive truth that so many people seem to, to not get real change this goes against almost everything you've ever been taught on change real change begins not with you being told what you are to do for God but believing what God has done for you in the New Testament believing rightly precedes behaving rightly verse 10 if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love Now, this verse trips people up sometimes because they're like, well, hold on. You just talked about God's gift righteousness and resting in God's grace. But here, it sounds like Jesus is saying that abiding in Him is conditional on us keeping His commandments. Ah, very good question, Grasshopper. But that's not actually what it says. Look at it again. Look at it again. It doesn't say that His love is a reward for having kept His commandments. It says that one of the ways we remain connected to his love is By keeping these commandments that he's given us Over the next several weeks. We're going to talk specifically about five different commands that Jesus gives to us In these passages. in this passage five different ones Right the five different ones are he's going to command us to read the Bible and pray spend time with him that way I don't need that up. You can take it down Read the Bible and pray. Number two, he's going to command us to have godly character. Number three, he's going to command, if you're trying to write all these down, you don't need to because we're going to come back to these ad nauseum, All right, he commands us, um, he commands us to uh, be in community. He commands us to be involved in um, taking Christ to people who do not have him. And he commands us to be generous. Okay, those are his five commands that he is probably referring to here. Now here's the question. What's the purpose for us keeping those commandments? Is it that when we keep them, God approves of us more and feels closer to us? Well, no, I just explained to you that's exactly the opposite of what it's saying because God's acceptance is given to us as a gift, gift righteousness. The purpose of keeping those commandments is twofold. Watch this. Number one, it's a proper response to God's grace. We do those things because having been changed by God's grace, that's what we now desire, and that's a proof that we are abiding in His love. But number two, watch this. This is maybe where I might lose some of you. It's also a means by which we remain connected to His love. Let me explain that. Take reading the Bible for a minute. Reading the Bible every day, memorizing Scripture, does not make God love you more. It's not like Christ's righteousness is perfectly perfectly complete. It's not like you can add to it by reading your Bible every day and that makes Him like you more. You're complete in Christ. But what, listen, what reading the Bible daily does is puts you in the presence of... Of the awareness of the love of God for you you can remain in it by reading the Bible you can begin to saturate your thinking in the love of God and you begin to think in line with the gospel you see the challenge is not earning God's love that's given as a gift the challenge is living in the constant awareness of God's love the hard work of Christianity is not earning God's love it is believing that God's love was given to us as a gift So obeying that command to read the Bible allows you to daily reflect on the truth of God's love and as you believe in that love His power is released in you and the Bible reading the Bible simply offers you the opportunity To rest in God's love, which is what releases the life of God into you is that making sense at all? think of it like this a wire a wire has no power in itself uh, the other day I helped my dad um, change a, a, a light fixture and I've just, you know, I have no knowledge of these things and I'm scared to death because I'm like, the wire, which one, which one fries me? I don't know. I don't want to touch them. But when you cut off the electricity to it, it has no power in itself, but a wire is a conduit from a power source. It has no power in itself, but it connects you to the place from which the power flows. Well, in the same way, these commands, these spiritual disciplines have no power in themselves, but they connect us to the place From which the power flows that's what all those things are all these commands you know being in community that's another great example that's how you remain connected to the gospel because God is using his church to remind you of the love of God verse 13 generosity even generosity helps connect you to the gospel hey give you an example of this that if you've ever been generous in your life you'll know what I'm talking about right I mean it is by being generous that you become more generous you ever notice this I get an extra $1,000 for whatever reason. Tax refund or one of you just comes up and gives it to me because you love me. Whatever. My birthday's May 1st. Um, You know, that happens, right? So you give me, or not you give me, Uncle Sam gives me $1,000. Now, to my shame, I'll just be honest with you. It is not often that my first thought with that money is, this is a great $1,000 I can invest in the kingdom of God. Oh, no. I think I need another flat screen TV. Right, I'm like there's a place in a hallway between my bedroom and the family room where there's not one, <laughs> and I really want to be able to keep up with what's going on TV when I walk through there, so I got to buy me a flat screen TV. Right now, what happens though is God has commanded me to be generous, so I take that thousand dollars and I invest it in the kingdom of God, and guess what happens? God uses that to put me in touch with the generosity of the gospel, and I start to love generosity even more. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 6:21. It's where your treasure is, that's where your heart follows. So it is by being generous that we become more in touch with the generosity of Christ, which actually changes our hearts to love and know the gospel more. Does that make sense? This could be a little difficult, so we're going to spend eight weeks on it. But the whole deal is these things are like wires that connect us to the place from which the power flows. Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. By the way, I've tried this verse on my friends, and it doesn't work. You are my friends if you do what I command you. works for Jesus, not for me. Jump down to verse 16. You do not choose me, but I chose you. There Jesus establishing that he is a Calvinist. Uh, Not really, that's not his main purpose there. Um, I married a Calvinist, by the way. Do you know that? My wife grew up Presbyterian. So we had a, I grew up independent of we had an interesting marriage the first year or two. Uh, you know, because they're all into the Calvinism thing. I grew up singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. She grew up singing, you have decided I'll follow Jesus. Um, our compromise when we got married was I baptized her, I made her quit drinking, and consented to the fact that it was all predestined to happen. Uh, that was how our marriage worked the first couple of years. All right. Jesus, his ma- he might be a Calvinist, but his main point here is not that he's telling you he's a Calvinist. His main point is what follows. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he might give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. All right, here we go. This passage shows us, first of all, number one, this passage shows us what spiritual change is. Let me just make sure, let me summarize this in case you didn't Totally get it, here we go. What spiritual change is, spiritual change is the life of Jesus coming into you. You see, God had told Adam, well, let me back up. The reason that spiritual change is because the condition we're in is spiritual death. God had told Adam and Eve that the day they ate of the forbidden fruit that they would surely die. If you've ever read Genesis 2, you'll notice they didn't drop dead the moment they ate the fruit. So you're like, well, what happened? Did they not die to God not keep his word? No, their bodies began to die, but immediately their spirit, that part of them that was alive in God, died and the result was their heart began to desire the wrong things no longer did they desire god's glory they desired their glory no longer did they put god first they put other things first no longer were they god-centered they became radically self-centered and that was spiritual death so that you and i are now in a condition where we choose sin because that's what's in our hearts what we desire right i mean you, you may have heard this phrase before but we're not sinners because we sin we sin because we're sinners Spiritual death is at work in our heart, and so we just choose that. You know, I was teaching this to the Greer children the other night um, for family devotions. Uh, Genesis 2 is where we were, and so we're actually working through this. And um, you know, for those of you that, that are new here, I have an 8-year-old girl, a 6-year-old girl, a 3-year-old girl, and a one and 1⁄2-year-old um, little boy, but he wasn't part of this because he was already down. Um, so the 8-year-old, 6-year-old, 3-year-old, are, are, as we're explaining this, Um, I get everything done, we pray, I'm walking out of the room, and you guys know that's a key moment, because if I can just get out of the room, then home free for the evening. And as I'm walking out of the room, Allie, my six-year-old, who does this frequently, from the top bunk, lobs out this question. She's like, Dad, if we try really, 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 really really hard, could we never sin? So first of all, it's not a relevant question for you at all, okay? (laughs) Um, Number two is... (laughs) Number two, number two is, is no, no. You see, I said, I said, Allie, the condition that you and I are in is we're in a condition of spiritual death. And so we, our hearts are sinful so that even if we try really hard, sin is what's in us. That's why we need Jesus to deliver us and to save us, right? So then I start walking out the door, all right? I flip off the light and then just throw back over. I was like, now Adam, had Adam wanted not to sin, he could have not sinned. But Adam chose to sin, and because of that, all of us, his children, we're born into sin, so we can't help not to sin. That's just part of our nature and who we are. Bam, turn off the light, I'm out. Okay? <laughs> I get three steps out, and I hear from the top bunk, "Adam's such an idiot. <laughs> so yes, Adam is an idiot, but, but the condition that we're in now is we're in a condition of spiritual death. Dorothy Sayers the philosopher you say that sin is the condition of being radically curved in on yourself So the point is any change that lasts has to happen on the desire level So that we begin not just to do right things again, but we begin to desire right things again Which leads me to number two and that is how spiritual change happens How spiritual change happens is by abiding in Jesus love for you by making your home in it in the gospel In the gospel are all the resources necessary for spiritual growth and by abiding in the gospel dwelling in it we change you see the gospel is not a list of things that we're to do for God the gospel is the glorious good news of what God has done for us it's not a list of behaviors to be adopted the gospel is an announcement to be believed it's not good advice it's good news So by resting in the news of God's love, given as a gift in Christ, that's how the life of God flows into us. That's how the Holy Spirit is released inside of us. Let me show you this really quickly from a couple other places in Scripture, just so you don't think I'm making this up. Colossians 1, verse 6. This was Paul, the Apostle Paul talking. I love this. In the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it does also among you. Here's the point. Here's the question. When Paul thinks about gospel growth, what's he talking about? Gospel growth. He, is he thinking about more people in the world getting saved? Yes. But he's also thinking about the church that is already saved growing deeper in the gospel. What's it mean for the Summit Church to grow in the gospel? Does it mean that we grow and expand and reach more people? Absolutely. That's growth in the gospel. But it also means that the members of the Summit Church grow in their understanding of the greatness of God, what links God went to to save them, and how great and good God is. That is growth in the gospel. And in fact, I would tell you that until we're good at that part of the gospel we will never be really effective at the other parts Because it's as we are convinced of the power of transformation in our lives That we have the confidence to go into the homeless the orphan the prisoner or the young one mother in high school dropout and declare the freedom of Christ to them That's growth in the gospel I'll give you another example second Peter chapter 1 This is the one that our small groups are going to study this week So I just give you a little preview a little taste of it Peter what he does in this passage second Peter 1 the apostle Peter gives you kind of a list It's like a, it's like, it's like a, um, a pyramid of spiritual growth. He says, add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge, add to your knowledge self-control. Then he adds two or three other things on top of that. All right, I remember the first time I I taught this, heard this passage taught on. I was sitting there, and it was, a guy actually used an overhead projector to teach it. Y'all remember those? Overhead projector? Flannel board, overhead projector, eight-track tapes. That was my childhood. Um, flannel, uh, so he, he has this, um, has this overhead projector, And he puts up a picture of a spiritual pyramid and he says, here we go. We got the different levels of spirituality, faith, virtue, which is being nice to people, according to him. Um, Knowledge, which in our tradition always meant learning more doctrines about eschatology, you know, the rapture, whether or not Kirk Cameron was going to get left behind. That was knowledge, okay? Then on top of that was self-control, which for a guy was always interpreted through the filter of sexual lust." okay and then his he said this he said i want you to figure out what level you're on and then make a resolution to go home this week and climb up a level i was like oh where am i faith i'm not that nice to people i'm kind of a self-centered jerk i knew that at 13. um then you know on top of that was not i don't know much about the rapture then there was like you know beyond that there was self-control i'm like oh, these things are all an issue i don't know where i am but that's not the point that peter was making he wasn't giving you a to-do list to climb I'm giving you a ladder to climb. In fact, if you read down, you'll see this in your small group. About verse 9, he says, If these things are not developing in you naturally, you've forgotten the gospel. So in other words, the way that you begin to climb that pyramid is you remember the gospel. You think about the gospel, because as you dwell on and abide in the gospel, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, brotherly love, all those things begin to grow in you as naturally as roses on a rose bush. Because you are alive and there is life at work in you. Second Peter 3.18, you're growing in the gospel. You never grow by growing beyond the gospel. You grow by growing deeper into the gospel. You see, there are two kinds of growth. Let me summarize this like this. There's two kinds of growth. There's mechanical growth. This is, these terms are not original with me, but there's mechanical growth, which is growth externally. Growth by external pressures give you a really easy example of this. Um, I've done enough marriage counseling to recognize this scenario pretty quickly. You get a couple that comes in and one of the two has dragged the other one in. Sometimes, not always, but maybe usually, the wife has dragged the husband in because the husband has no interest in having a good relationship. The wife has finally, though, dropped the hammer and said, I'm leaving you. So the husband, in desperation, comes with her to sit in front of the marriage counselor, And she begins to list out her complaints and the most unusual response takes over this guy. He blubbers, sometimes he cries, he makes promises that he's going to change because he doesn't want her to leave. Now in actuality all his promises to change have nothing to do with a new love for her or a genuine repentance. It's that he doesn't want her to leave. So what happens almost invariably is he will change for a period of time until he thinks there's no longer a threat of her leaving. And then guess what? BAM! Back to the way that he was. Because he wasn't changing genuinely. He was changing because of external pressure. Here's three possible motivations. He changed out of fear. He doesn't want her to leave. He changed from pride. He doesn't want the stigma of being divorced. He changed from a desire for something else. That would be another way he might change. Uh, What I mean by that is like he desires a stable home. He desires marriage. So he will be nice to his wife, not because he loves her, but because he wants this other thing. Well, see, in the same way, religiously, people change sometimes for all the same reasons. Fear of punishment. But they're not genuinely in love with God. They just don't want to go to hell. They don't want God to curse them. Maybe pride. It's like, well, this is what good Christians are. and this is why I can't tell you how many times I hear the phrase, that's how I was raised. This is just how we are. We're better than everybody else. This is how I was raised. So, you know, it's pride. It's like, this is what I am. It might be a desire for something else. If I obey God, then he's going to bless my life, give me a stable marriage, take me to heaven. Right? It's using God, not loving God. That's mechanical change. It's external pressures from the outside. Uh, here's another example. This is, I'm your pastor. This is what I do. I sit around all day long, and I think up analogies. Um, metal. How do you change metal? Okay, well, there's two ways, right? One is you could heat metal up, and if you heat metal up, then you can forge it into a different shape. But if you don't do that, you just try to bend it, I thought about by the way bringing a piece of metal up here to do this and then I thought I might embarrass myself so I thought better of that um, if a, you try to bend it like this what happens well one of two things either you bend it like this and you let it go and then it, it snaps back to what it was or it breaks when people begin to change religiously that doesn't come from a change internally in their desires one of those two things happens as soon as the external motivations are gone Bam! They go back to the way they were, which is why sometimes when God disappoints some people, a dream doesn't turn out, they get mad at God and they leave God. And they're like, God, if you're not going to give me this, I'm not going to follow you. That was part of the deal. I did this for you, you did this for me. They were never following God for God's sake, they were following God because God was a better means to some end. Or they break spiritually. They just get to a point, they're like, I hate this! I've been drugged to church and always like I always feel like I've got to do this, and I just, I want to be this over here. They leave their husband, they leave their wife, they they do all this stuff. That's just the real them coming out because they had all this pressure on them and they broke spiritually. The gospel changes you in an entirely different way. It doesn't change you through external pressure. It changes you through internal transformation, right? How does that internal transformation happen? By abiding in the news of his love. The gospel saturates you with the reality of his love. Specifically the announcement about what God did for you in Christ. And guess what happens? Your heart begins to love him. 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because why? Because we made a decision at church that we were going to start loving God. No, you can't decide to start loving something. We love him because our heart got captivated by God and, and we begin to love him naturally. It just began to flow out of us because we were changed. You you following this? The example I used a few weeks ago is I asked you, I said if you you were out running an errand and when you got home there was a friend of yours sitting on your porch and said while you were out, somebody came that you owed a, a, a bill to and I paid the bill for you. And I asked you the question, I was like, what would your response be to that person? Answer, depends on how much they paid. If they paid some undue postage, you know, 34 cents, or I haven't mailed a letter in like eight years, or whatever it is now. Um, what is it now, like 40-something? I don't know, it's ridiculous. But um, if, you, if you, if they just paid that little amount, then you slap them on the back, you're like, thanks, you're a great friend, I appreciate you doing that. Right? If they're like, no, well, actually, the IRS had finally caught up with you, you owe 10 years of back taxes, it was $160,000, and they were going to take you to prison. At that point, you don't slap them on the back and say, thank you, you fall at their feet and say, command me. Right? When we are overwhelmed with what God has done for us in the gospel, our heart begins to grow in love for him. Now, so many Christians go off on this point. If you listen, you'll hear all these alternate ways that Christians put forward for strategies for change. And a lot of churches that that you and I grew up in, the emphasis was on the rules. This is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to watch. This is what you're supposed to listen to. This is what you're supposed to say and not say. Here's what you're supposed to drink and not drink. Smoke and not smoke. Anybody grow up in a church like this? Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't have problems, just to be clear, just so I'm not inconsistent. I don't have problems with guidelines for how Christians ought to live. Because face it, we all have them, don't we? I mean, even at the most relaxed church, I feel like our church is pretty relaxed. Even at the most relaxed church, it's generally understood. Girls should not come to church in bikini tops and guys should not come in Speedos. Fair? <laughs> So there are guidelines, I mean, we understand that, but you look at us and say, well, you bunch of legalists. No. The problem at the churches that some of us grew up at was that the emphasis was on the list of rules and on things we were to do for God and not on what God has done for us. Because I don't care how good, how lenient, or how strict the rules are, when the focus is on what you're do to do for God, it will never bring change into your life. Change only flows from standing in awe of what God has done for you. Some churches say, well, the way that you change is by doctrine. You got to learn more. So churches are like big classrooms where you get stuff full of knowledge. Some say, no, 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 it's not through that, it's through radical obedience, it's through it just, just crazy amounts of generosity. That's how you really change. Others say, no, it's through this, like, spiritual baptism. You get filled up with faith and the Holy Ghost and have all these spiritual gifts. That's when, you're, that's when your Christian life hits hyperdrive right there. I, I love what Paul says. This is one of my favorite little three-verse segments of Paul. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Look at this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, spiritual gifts, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good one. When you can sit around and converse in an unknown language with an angel, that's varsity, all right? But I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I've got prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, in other words, not only do I understand everything there is to know about systematic theology, I also understand mysterious things. I can explain Calvinism, I can tell you exactly what it is. That's what Paul's saying here. And I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away everything I have and I delivered up my body to be burned, and had not love on nothing. Now, again, face it, Paul's list is varsity here by anybody's standard. Right? I mean, spiritual gifts and great faith and I mean, radical obedience. When the offering plate goes by and you pull out a match and light yourself on fire, that's, that's radical at a whole new level. Agreed? You see what Paul said? Unless those things are flowing out of a heart of love, it is worthless. And love in the heart cannot be produced by any of those things. Love in the heart is produced by something different, something radically different. And that is that we begin to love him because he first loved us. Love in our hearts for God will only be produced by a felt knowledge of his love for us. Love in the heart for God is produced by a felt sense of the love of God. It's every time I walk into the Christian bookstore, there's like a new strategy that I see. You ever notice this for Christian? If you just get this down... Then your life is different. They, I was in one the other day, and they're like, "Oh, the megachurch is the problem, and I got this religious show, and everybody's talking." it. so we need to do away with the traditional church altogether and go to missional communities. Now you know me well enough to know I am all for getting the audience out of the audience and into the ministry. We say that all the time here, but I read these books, and I'm like, I don't think they get it because it's not a new strategy that's going to produce change in their hearts. I don't care how good the strategy is; it's the gospel. You can live in a commune with the Apostle Paul one-on-one for five years. That's not going to produce change in your heart. Standing in awe of what God has done for you, that's what restructures your heart. You see, here's why. Sin at its core is a worship problem. It's a worship problem. It's radical self-centeredness. You worship yourself, not God. Guess what? If sin begins as a worship problem, if the way into sin is worship, then the way out of sin is worship. The worship of your heart's got to be changed. That's why religion can't do that, because religion can't change the worship of your heart. It's like John Owen the Puritan used to say religion trims off the roots, the fruits of sin, but it doesn't pull out the roots of sin. That takes something altogether different. That's why I told you we need to be set free, not just from sin, but from religious substitutes for the gospel as well. That's why the most important central element in what we do here is the gospel. That's why I told you you hear it in every sermon. Charles Spurgeon, um, famous British pastor, he said that at the end of every sermon, he plowed a trough back to the gospel. I used to think that what that meant was that at the end of whatever he was talking about, you know, he's talking about this over here, he takes a hard left turn and goes toward the four spiritual laws. Here's how you'd be saved. Because that's just important. That's what I thought it meant. But that's not what he means. Think of the image of a trough. A trough is something water flows through, right? What he was saying was, no matter what I'm talking about, marriage, generosity, self-control, no matter what I'm talking about, the power to do whatever it is I'm saying is going to flow from the cross of Jesus Christ. The water of life flows to the trough that I plow back to the gospel, because that's the place that power comes from. Let me read you this, Kevin DeYoung, and then I'm going to show you what what we're going to do in this series. I'm going to do this quickly. Listen to this, Kevin DeYoung. No doubt some Christians need to be shaken out of their lethargy But there are also a whole bunch of Christians who need to be set free from their performance-minded shackles. I promise you that some of the best people in your churches are getting tired. They don't need more statistics and more stories about how bad everything is in the world. They need to hear about Christ's death and resurrection. They need to hear about how we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. They need to hear the old, old story once more. Because the secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God, and hear more about what God has already done for us. The gospel produces in us what no amount of religion ever could, a desire for God. So what we're going to do in this series is really twofold. First, I want to introduce you to a gospel prayer that I have learned to pray, something I wrote over the last three or four years that I pray literally every single day that just saturates my thinking in the gospel. I gave it to you today in the form of a bookmark that I would encourage you to put in your Bible or somewhere, here it is, um, that you won't lose it like I just did. Um, I put on one side of it, you get the four phrases of the gospel prayer. Now, just total disclaimer here, and most of you know this, but I'll just say it to have said it. Yes, it is true. I have a book coming out October 1st on this very thing. And yes, some of that information is on the back, and it's it's a shameless plug. But I will tell you this. I will tell you this. Um, just so you know that we're not, we're not using this for just um, like promotion, author promotion. Uh, all, everything we sell here at the church, the proceeds do not come to me. They go into the church, right? And this book is really kind of a summation of just the core principles of the Summit Church. Yeah, my name's on the cover, but the name that really be on the cover is probably your name, Summit Church. But the publisher wouldn't go for that, so it's gonna be it's got to be a, a person's name, and that's me. Um, so that's down there. But here, to, here are the four phrases of the gospel prayer, and I would— I encourage you in your, for every day of this series, every day of the series, to pray these four phrases. And just see what happens. Here they are. In Christ, there's nothing I can do to make you love me more, nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Gift righteousness. You, if you really believe that, your whole mentality would be different this morning. If you lived perfectly all week long, God would not love you anymore. And if you messed up worse than you've ever messed up before, this Friday, He doesn't love you less because it's gift righteousness what God earned for you in your place and gave you as a gift. This goes to war against works righteousness. Number two, you're all I need today for everlasting joy. It, it's one thing to know that God accepts you fully in Christ. It's another thing for that to be the weightiest reality in your life. Where you say, I don't need the approval of people. I don't need the nicest car, the nicest house, the raise, of the job. Those things would be nice if I got them, but you know what? I don't need them. You are all I need. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. That goes to war against my idolatry. First one goes to war against my works righteousness and the second one my idolatry the third one as you've been to me So I will be to others. That's radical generosity Right as God has built, poured himself out for me now. I'm gonna pour myself out for others Radical generosity the gospel produces that in your heart number four as I pray I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. That's two different things. That's audacious faith because when you start seeing the world through the lens of how God feels about them as expressed by the gospel Then all of a sudden, you begin to pray these crazy big prayers for people because you realize how much God cares about them and how much he's willing to do in their lives. The other thing it'll lead you to is reckless faith. Audacious faith and reckless faith. Reckless faith, what I mean is this, is when God doesn't answer your prayer and you're disappointed, you don't doubt his love for you because that was expressed to you at the cross. Your compassion is measured by the cross, your power by the resurrection. And so when you don't do what I think you should do, then I'll trust the God that was revealed at the cross even when I can't see it right in front of me. Reckless faith. I want you to pray those four things daily. Saturate yourself in the gospel. And I want you to watch the transformation that will happen in your heart. The other thing I want you to do is I want you to delve deeply into these five spiritual disciplines that we're going to talk about as a disciple. I want you to learn about them. If you're in a small group, it's going to be easy. If you're not in a small group, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, but you can still do it. Right? And the whole time you do it, you can feel bad about not being in a small group and thinking about how much easier this would be if you were in a small group. And when you start to think about the one in community, you can either defy God and not get in a small group, or you can obey God in that one and get in a small group. That's how it's gonna flow, okay? So what you do is, is you're gonna spend time in these five things, study along with me, and let's watch this process of transformation, okay? All right, let's bow, bow our heads at all of our campuses.